Jack, how's it going? I'm fine, thank you. How are Good. You? We're sitting in the office, and last night, I think we're both a bit tired probably, mm. last night, we were both up until about midnight, doing the final edits, final touches, headline changes, should we take this out, should we put this in, to a big piece that you've been working on for quite a while. Yep, that's right. What was the piece about? Sasha Lord. Sasha Lord. Well, Sasha Lord is the nighttime economy advisor for Greater Manchester, and he joins me now. Thank you very much for joining me today. He's the co-founder of Warehouse Project, huge series of club nights that have become like a massive financial success. Mm. Hundreds of thousands of people each year going to these club nights. Now they're, now they're at the Mayfield Depot. Co-founder of Parklife, mm. massive music festival. Attracts, again, tens of thousands of people to the city every year. But also an influential political figure. He's the nighttime economy advisor to Andy Burnham. And I think almost since the moment I started the mill, I've wanted to know more about him. Mm -hmm. Because when I started the mill, he was on the up. Yeah. He was suddenly everywhere. TV, radio, his Twitter account was kind of ever-present. His tweets were going viral. When did you first sort of, when did he come onto your radar? Over the pandemic, probably, even though I will have heard of him. I remember when I was doing work experience at university, my first memory of him was him being in a group chat with the other journalists that I was working with. And they were all talking about, um, funnily enough, Mark Garner, who I then ended up writing about later on down the line. Because yeah. the pair actually had a very early working relationship. Mm. So that was the first time I ever probably heard of him and, and had to be like, who is that? And then I'd say probably developing an interest in him would have been that same year when the pandemic started and he rose to prominence as this because hospitality became such a big news item he was such a natural figure to then do that and then once I started working at the mill one of the things that I wrote about were people who died at these events and I went to the inquests and read old inquest reports about them and that kind of built my interest up in him as a person. So in the pandemic, he became the main spokesperson for the hospitality industry. Yeah. In fact, he actually kind of became one of the main spokespeople for Greater Manchester, yeah. even for the North. And he was everywhere, and he was very good at broadcasting. He was very good at making a pithy point mm -hmm. on the TV. And I think he probably at that point went from someone who was known in Manchester known among nightlife people, to someone who had a bit more of a national reputation. Yeah. He's not famous, but he's like a, someone you see on TV quite a bit, someone who, who TV producers want to have on a lot. How refreshing is it to see all the leaders of the North come together as one voice for this sector? You know, things were pointed out there. Why, when it was a national furlough, it was 80%. When it comes to hospitality, we're treated like second-class citizens with an offer of 67%. And our Mayor Andy Byrne was quite right what about the supply chain around hospitality? And to his strong words that he will legally challenge it are refreshing. It is fantastic we have this report. And I can tell you, late last night, he did text me to say, you know, he's fighting for this industry as hard as he can. One of the interesting things about your profile is you get into the question of whether his role for Andy Burnham has really helped him. Hmm. In what way has it helped him? His response was, could you show me anywhere 
you know, could you point to a, a policy where that I've, you know, directly benefited from or a way that I've directly benefited from having that role was his sort of natural comeback to that. And it is in one way, yes, it's difficult to prove how that role has directly benefited his business interests, like the Warehouse Project or Park Life. But as we say in the piece, or as I write in the piece, it's clearly helped him with regard to PR and with regard to his own authority, kind of just as a figure mm. amongst people. Having that sort of link to Burnham makes mm. you so much more legitimate. Not that it was unlegitimate before, but yeah. it's just like when you have something like that, especially, I think I remember speaking with you about it and you're like, there's a weird thing about like UK newspapers or, or UK news where if you can just get someone who has some link to authority, it's like, well, yeah. he's that guy, therefore he has a, an authoritative voice on the topic. So it made him much more attractive to those kinds of opportunities, I guess. It built up massive PR capital, didn't it? Yeah. Because he wasn't just going on the, on the TV as the founder of really big nightlife events, which is one way that his, his authority was established. But also, he had an official role mm. in basically the nightlife capital of the country, yeah. arguably Europe. He is the nightlife economy guy. Yeah. Take me th- through how this piece got off the ground because I seem to remember someone who we're not going to name came into our office and as they were leaving and we were talking about other stuff they gave us a tip do you remember that? I do it was after the wake of someone's death called James Diss who I wrote about later who died at the warehouse project it was a drug related death from drugs that his friends had gotten in and there was a lot of news coverage of that at the time and this person who came into the office suggested that Essentially, the people who were having terrible reactions to, to drugs at Warehouse were then being transported to the hospital in basically vehicles that weren't ambulances. Why? The, the suggestion was to avoid public scrutiny. Yeah, the, the idea that if you have a stream of sirens coming in and out of the, yeah. the warehouse projects every night, it makes it look bad. So then we went and checked that out. We FOI'd the council and looked at how many ambulances were being called there. And we also looked at you know the private companies that do offer those sorts of services. Mm. We found no evidence that there were, you know, what they were suggesting was that these people were essentially being like taken to hospital in Ubers, mm. which we found no evidence of. We actually went to a warehouse project night, stood outside. And we had someone inside. And we had someone inside. We watched ambulances. We noted down the companies. Yeah. We put in a freedom of information requests into the hospitals, the hospital trusts. And basically what we found, without getting too much into the details, is this rumour about Warehouse Project trying to circumvent the system so that they didn't look bad wasn't true. No. It didn't stand up. And I think after that we kind of dropped the whole thing for a while. Mm. And it was later, wasn't it, about a year ago, that we came around and thought, actually, Sasha Lord warrants a proper look. Mm. We should do a proper piece. Yeah, and his, by that point, again, his his stature in the city had just grown more and more. I think, like, there's no real very definitive way of measuring it unless we were to break down maybe his Twitter followers, but mm. even from last year to now, his authority has in- increased even more. He battles with the government about mm. spiking or drugs testing or something like that. Various things he seems to be constantly in the news about. Mm. So even by then, just within the space of a year, there was a little bit more. And I think that first person coming in with that tip kind of planted a bit of a seed for us where it was like, this is someone whose speculation seems to cling to. Yeah, big time. That's such a good way of putting it. Like, I have heard so many different rumours about him. There's the rumour about his mum being a Manchester councillor. That's how he keeps his licences. There's a rumour about his brother working for the council because there is someone called Lord who works in a responsible position at the council. There are loads of rumours. They attach to him. Yeah, And it's like, people that rumours attach to are interesting. Definitely. 
that is one of the main things that I found interesting about him. And also, I think it speaks a lot to the culture of the industry that he's in. I, th- I guess, like, really what the profile, or at least the first part of the profile specifically, which is about his his place in his own industry and how he kind of remade it, it's actually quite a classic story of just what being successful can be like and one aspect of being a very successful person in an industry is that you get a lot of people basically thinking that you're doing one thing or another and you know he described those things as basically you, you get people thinking you're breaking the rules mm. you get people thinking there's some sort of conspiracy mm. he is made out to be a villain and I think it would only be fair to say I mean we, we, I think we kick him at times in both these pieces yeah. you know for, for, for various things but it'd be fair to say that we've checked out quite a few different allegations that would make him out to be a villain. And we have struggled to stand those things up. Yeah. So either we're bad journalists, or there's quite a lot floating around about Sasha Lord that isn't true. Yeah. So let's talk about your interviews with Lord himself. Yeah. I sat in on the first one, yeah. as editors sometimes do for big interviews. And it was interesting to me how worried Sasha Lord seemed to be about the piece yes. I think that was partly because you had published a couple of highly critical pieces about people like Mark Garner people like the guy behind Manor mm-hmm. and he probably thought oh god they've got something on me yeah. they're going to give me a huge huge kicking so that was the one thing he kept on making jokes about how you were going to bury him the other thing I think was that there's something very controlled about him there's yeah. something like he really focuses on you, he really listens to the question, he yeah. really crafts his answer. And it gave me an insight into like why he's been successful in that industry, that nightlife yeah. industry, full of kind of bohemians and, and, and like wreckheads and pillheads and all sorts of people who want to be at the party all night. That was a, a really interesting thing in your, in, your, in your first piece. In amongst all these kind of hospitality operators, Lord is different, isn't he? Yeah, he has this kind of laser focus. And I think in one of the earlier drafts we were talking about how you, that is true when you speak to him, you can almost feel him like analysing what you're... like the deeper level of what you're saying and trying to like really understand you. And it's quite an odd thing. But yeah, in the industry that he entered at the time in the 90s, as is written about broadly, but I mean, Dave Haslam writes about, you know, the bills weren't paid, no money was made. It was kind of very much fly by the night. You were just in it because you loved art, essentially. You loved music. Haslam writes about the punk amateurism that surrounded the Hacienda, for example. Yeah, exactly. And that was the first place that Lord says that he held his first night at. It does in his, when you were saying before about he has this real control... He has real control in his sort of personal dealings with you, but he also has real control over his own narrative of how he reached this point. Mm. And he's very practised in, in giving you the story of how he had this first night at the Hacienda, then he had student nights for a few years, then he went to Sankey's, and then the warehouse project is billed as the kind of natural progression of that time. Yeah. Like, this is what it was all leading to. Yeah. It's, you know, an almost direct descendant of the Hacienda. But then if you ask people in the industry, it's kind of like there is no lineage between these two places. They mm. aren't similar at all. The warehouse project's success story is that there was the whole sink was thrown at this thing. We didn't know what we were doing. We put our house, houses on the line and we, it, we came out with something really original. But, like, even Sasha himself, when we spoke, kind of said like you know the, there are other people doing what we do and there were other people offering the kind of thing the warehouse project came to offer what made it so popular and what made it so successful is two things really one it's ephemeral it only happens for a certain part of the year the last mm. three months of the year which gives it a kind of exclusivity mm. and well you'll talk about exclusivity in a bit but mm. 
it's also the fact that it's just ran incredibly efficiently. It manages to kind of entertain 300,000 people a year in gutted out warehouses of, you know, temporary fittings and the biggest DJs in the world is basically how it works. Mm. And that's like, that, the efficiency and the fact that it doesn't last very long creates this really potent mix that is just proved unbelievably effective. You talked just now about like the story he is used to telling. I think yeah. like successful people are often like interviewed often and mm. therefore they have a story. Did you find it difficult to pierce beyond that? Um, slightly. I mean, he's very practiced in it, like you say. Mm. He's been on lots of podcasts and he's told this exact story. Funnily enough, I was getting my hair cut while I was doing this story and mm. mentioned to my barber, like, oh yeah, I'm writing about Sasha Lord. And he was like, oh no way, he gets his hair cut at another one of our branches. He mm. came to our Christmas party and gave a talk. And I was like, what was the talk about? And he was like, just kind of like how he became successful. Mm. Like, it was like, he is constantly giving that story to people. Honestly, there were points where I looked back through my notes and I was reading quote for quote, you know, from other interviews that I'd listened to, I was being given the exact same sentences. So yeah, it was difficult. Which, by the to... way, is a thing that politicians do. Well, yeah, exactly. That's the thing you would have if you spoke to Burnham. Yeah, you spoke to Keir Starman. Almost yeah. exactly. And yeah, trying to pierce that. I mean, a lot of the piercing came from having that, which I think someone mentioned on Twitter. The piece really benefits from is a plurality of voices that he hasn't had before so where you can go like oh but I spoke to this one person and they remember this what do you think about that and then he gives you a little kind of different aspect of one part of his life and that was why a lot of the interviews took so long and also why I did so many quite long ones with him and met him a few times was it was always just trying to pierce back at these points mm. and just kind of be like, okay, let's talk about the, your dad again, mm. which was something that he was really open about and he hasn't been before, mm. which I found surprising and, and really interesting part of his life. And we talked about that quite a lot, that there's a lot that didn't go into the story about that part of his life, really, mm. because what comes later is so much more relevant, I guess. Yeah. The piece has been like, well, two pieces, one profile over two pieces. It's been a really big success. Loads of new people have joined as members to read it. We've had really, really good feedback. But we always kind of review these stories afterwards. And I think one thing that like, jumps out on me is that it's a shame that none of his critics would go on the record. Yeah. Because it somehow always weakens a story when you've got someone on the record and then you've got people criticising them but not putting their names to it. It just has less authority. Mm. Because obviously people can say whatever they want off the record. Yeah. There's no accountability attached to their name. Just assuming it was really, really difficult to get people on the record. Why was it so difficult? I can't sugarcoat this, and I am a positive person. Operators are coming to me and saying, Do you know what? This has been a roller coaster for us since March. Our mental health is absolutely shot. We are on our knees. And that's not just operators, that's the employees as well. They're broken, they are shattered. It was difficult because I think, like, Lord's reputation in his industry is quite looming. Because he's so big and because the company's so big, I think there has sort of developed a kind of thinking which is like, you don't want to get on the wrong side of him because he has all this control over the industry. Mm. But then when you actually would speak to people and try to get an idea of how that control manifests, mm. is less control as it is just kind of, he's just the biggest thing in the jungle of this industry. Mm. He is the big thing that looms over everything else and to try and go against him, I feel for a lot of people, especially on the record, is kind of like, you're the guy throwing rocks at the massive thing and what's the point? Why put your name to it if you don't really feel like you're going to make a difference? Plus, if you can't speak candidly about it, which a lot of people feel they need to go off the record to do. But, but some of these people really dislike him. Yeah. Some of the people you've spoken to in the past few months have a long-standing critique. Some of the people feel like 
He has been really damaging to the industry that they care about. Some of them think that he is sort of totally commercialised, bottled, almost like homogenised, commoditized even, the thing that they love. They feel clubbing used to be revolutionary and countercultural. Debatable, but that's Mm. what some people in Manchester really think. That there was a real spirit of the revolution about the Hacienda, that there was an anti-establishment vibe to this whole punk clubbing, well, punk movement into the clubbing movement. And that this guy is commercialising it to the extent that you can buy shares in, mm. in, in the rave scene on the New York Stock Exchange. Sure, a few steps removed. <laughs> Quite enough. Why are they not willing to say that with their names attached? Well, the implication of what a lot of people say is that Lord is a vindictive person. Mm. And that's something that I've put to him and something that he wholly rejects. Mm. And also something that we didn't, again, find evidence for. Like, we've gone down a few different avenues. Yeah. And, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we've gone down a few different avenues. We often do with these stories to try and prove allegations that people give us. And, like, that one, I'm sure there there could be stories out there, but we have not managed to prove them. This is the -the off-the-record problem. If someone tells you a story of vindictiveness, and this is general for all stories... Yeah. Even off the record, it's identifying. So then when, you, when you're when you like, okay, I'll put that in the piece, they're like, whoa, no, because then they'll know that, because they only did that to me. So they'll be able to trace that back to me really easily. So then you end up in the situation where you're like, well, you did, you, you're willing to give me examples, but you aren't willing for me to print them, because yeah. if I print them, then they'll work back to you. So we're kind of in this like bind. So what you end up having to do is kind of just talk about a general feeling of vindictiveness, which is not as satisfying. Yeah. The part one of the story, I think, really reflected why you are interested in Lord. I think you have, ever since you started as a journalist, been interested in hospitality as an industry, the people behind it, the dynamics that make some people good at it and some people bad at it, yeah. the way that staff are treated. You've, that's, that's been a big theme of your reporting. I maybe am less interested in hospitality than you are, but I'm very interested in like the political dynamics of Manchester. Yeah, And I probably texted you or emailed you about a year ago saying Lord's running or he's running. Mm. Because I thought the way that he behaves on Twitter, the way he had this Axe the Red, what was it? Axe the Red Wall wall tax, um, which people can read about in the piece. It all seemed nakedly political to me. It just seemed to me you just wouldn't tweet like that and create campaigns like that and give them names like that unless you were at least planning to explore the possibility becoming Mayor of Greater Manchester or running to be an MP or or whatever. He denies that flatly, doesn't he? Yeah, he completely rules it out. I mean, one of the things about him is he has this real media-savvy modesty about him. Because his reason for not running for mayor isn't like, no, I'm not ambitious enough or... It's just like, oh, I'm just not as smart as Andy Burnham is. You know, like, he could, even that, he can come off as endearing. It's kind of like, no, that I couldn't do that. So let's, let's, let's... But you can mount big nakedly political campaigns and and communicate them really effectively but are you more of a campaigner than a actual governor so to speak yeah and maybe but people often say the same about Burnham yeah he's less of a details guy in terms of governing and he's a very very good public communicator Sasha Lord is clearly a very good public communicator look at his tweets he knows Mm. the pithy slogans he knows how to motivate people but he's also an unbelievable operator as we've written about yeah. so let's not say necessarily he would be a terrible mayor because no god knows i mean it's an interesting mix of skills but let's kick the tires on the idea that he doesn't want to be mayor yeah a would you admit if your friend Andy Burnham <laughs> was the mayor would you come out and say yeah i'd fancy a crack at the mayor no no 
So, so maybe he's giving us the answer you'd expect. Yeah. The other people who people talk about being a future mayor say the same. Like Dennett, we we interviewed yeah. uh, Paul Dennett, the mayor of Salford, much more on the left of the Labour Party. He used to be a sort of Corbynite, and we interviewed him, and he says, "No, no, I'm just thinking about my thing." And I think Bev Craig would probably be someone who increasingly is highly rated, yeah. um, leader of Manchester City Council. Gary Neville, he's not going to say, "I want to be mayor." No, but. Those are the kind of people in the mixer. And the reason that I find Lord interesting in that respect is he has secured this unbelievable perch in which to campaign from, mm. which is this unpaid job, yeah. this advisor job to... to we have had phenomenal support from the leaders, from Andy Burnham. You know, they've all acknowledged how important hospitality is and that's something that our city region has always done actually and that it will be losing millions at the moment but i know it will recover when you asked him about how much time he spends doing the burnham job yeah what did he say it said it was a 55 45 split between running warehouse project and his so we are saying if we take him at his word that he is splitting his time 55 on the business that makes him millions of pounds, certainly mm-hmm. derives millions and millions of revenue every year. We don't know what his personal mm-hmm. takeaway is that from that, but I'm sure, it, I'm sure it pays him handsomely. And 45, so let's say that's two and a half days a week-ish, yeah. to this unpaid position at the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I think you said it in your piece, it's kind of an extraordinary situation. It is, yeah. But then I also think, and this is where I think it's fair, or it would be fair to say that he is committed to that role. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say from the people I spoke to in council, the GMCA, originally there was a little bit of like, you know, uh, you don't really do anything. You know, it was kind of like, mm. there was a bit, you know, there was a feeling that the role was a bit dubious. And I think we wrote about that. Well, I did write about that in the piece with Richard Lees and how he was kind of like, I don't get this. Or, you know, that he wasn't really up for the blueprint thing. Mm. But when you look into what he's actually done for people, and this is an example in the in the second profile. He says every night he spends Sunday evening going through his Twitter DMs and replying to all the people who have asked him for help in some sort of way of working the hospitality. So industry. tell me about this. This is a this is a feature of Lord's online presence. I think I called it sort of patrician interventionism or something. Mm. There are these moments on his Twitter where he basically offers publicly to help people. Yeah. That's always been a thing he's done since the pandemic, isn't it? Yeah, that definitely did start to pick up then. I think there are examples of him, like, he's, he on Twitter, he is and always has been very active and very willing just to reply to anyone about anything, more or less. Right. But when it came to what you're talking about, this sort of patricianism, this kind of, I remember in my notes originally, it was more like saviorism mm. was how I felt about it. But yeah, he'll reply to someone who's having a difficult time in the hospitality industry and they'll be like, give me a follow, drop me a DM, I'll give you a ring and we'll see if we can help you. Mm. It doesn't really matter where they are in the country. I spoke to a woman who was in Edinburgh who you called had a brief chat with her and within a few days she had an on-the-job, on-the-spot offer for another job after losing the last job, which speaks to two things. One, his incredible connections all over the country, clearly. Mm. And also, his willingness to help people. He's not actually putting it on to get a few Twitter likes and for everyone to think, wow, isn't Sasha Lord a great guy? He's backing it up as well, which I think I rate that personally, and that's fair enough. Yeah, it's a bit like the Donald Trump thing. He used to like say, I'm going to give 100 grand to this charity and 200 grand to this charity, and they actually never gave the money no. when, when, when someone from the Washington Post checked. Lord, it seems, does actually back up what he says online. Which is, again, it's interesting. It's just like, it's, he's, I think that's, all of this kind of comes together to, to form an interesting picture. 
it's unbelievable success he's achieved in an industry where a lot of people really resent him and yeah. don't think he's the real thing. Mm. They don't think he's the real McCoy. They think he's some commercialised fake version of, of what a, a club operator should be. He's got this political role that gives him real influence and situates him right next to Andy Burnham, one of the most high-profile political leaders in the country, which has given Burnham, I think, a lot of help, and it's given the nightlife industry a lot more focus than it would normally mm. get. But it's also given Lord a lot more PR and mm. a lot more um, public stature than he would get. Would it be fair to say as well, though, that that's worked two ways? One person made the point to me when they were talking about the nighttime economy role is the sort of trendiness and differentiation that that passes back to Burnham as well. Mm. It looks like he's someone, and I'm sure he is, and it's a pretty ridiculous thing to say about a mayor, but he lo- it makes him look like a politician who really understands his city mm. by having this guy who's so deeply connected working with him rather than just being sort of... You know, it, the argument if he didn't have him helping him would be like, Burnham, you have all of this amazing mm. talent in your city that you aren't accessing and all this knowledge of how the industries work and mm. how to help people, but you aren't doing it. So I, I would understand that critique as well when people try and bat the legitimacy of that role that Lord has as well like, and how useful it actually is for the city. Yeah. And for Burnham. Yeah. We should probably admit to listeners, anyone who's listening to this point in the podcast, that we weren't planning to do two parts. No. Planning to do one. You left me in the unenviable position... <laughs> of having to edit down a draft that was 9,000 words. Yeah. You went off for a long weekend. I was struggling all day on a Friday editing it down. And um, eventually it got to about 5 o'clock and I was like, there's all this Burnham stuff and it, I think it's an important theme and I don't think you've quite nailed it. In the, you know, it yeah. was like, there's a lot of strong stuff in this piece, but I think this bit you haven't quite nailed. I do want to do it. But I'm not do it now in the edit. So I was like, right, okay, two pieces. Mm. Let's promise another one. You came back and, and, and strengthened that bit. And we obviously, we published the second part. So it, it wasn't like planned that way. No. It, was, it was an editorial panic. Yeah. Sophie came into, we've got two rooms, two offices down the corridor from each other. Sophie came into this one that we're sitting in now and was like, how's it going? And I was like, no way. It's still 7,000 words. We're trying to get it to four. So I was like, chop. And I put a few thousand words in a different document, edited the first one. And that's um, that's how it worked out. But actually, to go even further under the bonnet, it's really worked. Because yeah. <laughs> about 40 people have joined us as members just yeah. to read the second part. It was interesting looking at how that affected it, really. Yeah. And it's also satisfying for me. Much prefer that than see 4,000 words of reporting go by the wayside. Yeah, So yeah. we could only do it. Or, you know, having to try and deliver this very much like one punch deliver all information story that a lot of people would have probably been overwhelmed by it's interesting on lengths because Substack the platform we used to publish would not allow us to publish a 10,000 word story because of the length limits so we could never actually publish what what you might call like a New Yorker or Atlantic style long read in one chunk unless it had like no pictures or something which would be bad We, we have to, uh, I think a good length for us is like three or 4,000 words. Sometimes push the boat out to five. But because people are reading an email, you need to be a bit respectful of like, you know, it's not a print thing that they're reading. And so three or 4,000 feels about right to me. And I'm glad that we got the, the first one down to four because I think it, do, it, it did really well and loads yeah. of people actually finished it. If people don't finish a long read, you can tell because you don't get any shares yeah. and you don't get any engagement and stuff. But people clearly finished it. Loads of people signed up to become members. And now we're having one of our best ever months. Yeah. I think we're... You know, we're recording this 20 days into the month or 21 days into the month. 
you are talking about like 130 new members this month. We normally aim for 100 by the end of the month, so it's been an amazing month. Final question. You embark on these big stories, and then when they're finished, if you reflect back to the beginning, you must be able to think, how does the finished story I did compare to what I thought I was going to get at the beginning? So on this one, how does the finished Sasha Lord profile compare to what you kind of had buzzing around in your head when you started out? Almost there. Obviously, the key differences is now two pieces instead of one. Imagine it's one. I hadn't envisaged that. Um, There were things that I wish were in there. There were anecdotes we didn't get to put in, which was frustrating for me because I feel like, personally, those are my favourite parts of stories. So so there was one anecdote that I took out because we didn't have space. Yeah. But it was actually a really good one. You were going round on a buggy at Parklife. Yeah. What happened? Well, we were driving and I thought it would be a... A nice example of just showing how Lord operates on site. Mm. We were driving to one of the backstage areas and we were talking, funnily enough, about jumpers, people who climb the wall at Park Life and how they get in. And it, the conversation basically just made us both look at the wall as we were going past. And then as we were going past, we saw a security guy at the wall kind of fiddling with one of the panels. And I didn't think anything of it because well, I don't know how the place works. And then Sasha just like slammed the brakes on. We were both like getting out. I saw him getting out of the car really quickly, so I got out of the buggy as well. And then I followed him around and he went over to the security guard guy and he was, just, he was just basically like, under no circumstances do you open that door. They will rush it. Because in the sort of green, black, mm. pitch darkness of that forest, apparently, it's just dotted with people waiting for an opportunity to get into park life. Right. And like, it was such a key thing because part of the story at that point we were going to talk about, and we talked about it in the first one anyway, is how you had this these figures like Tony Wilson in the past who were very much just like hanging out in the artist's tent or whatever, mm. or would have been, if they ran park life. And then you have this complete diametric opposite operator of Lord who's literally driving around like warding off a break-in while we're going past like international entourage DJs, you know, all glittering in the sun and we're here trying to like, yeah, stop people jumping over a fence like it felt really like felt funny and parochial but also just like i think that really very well illustrates him and the way that he works uh in those situations hyper vigilant incredibly organized super observant observant cares about the detail of how things run rather than the kind of romance of the moment like even to the point where he was in the car with a journalist and he didn't he didn't think like i won't do this now because I'm with a journalist and he's asking me questions. Like, he was like, I don't care. I'm just going to get straight out of the car because what's more important to me is making sure that this festival runs properly. And, like, that, I think, typifies him. Listeners, if you haven't read the pieces yet, two pieces on Sasha Lord. Jack has put his guts into them for the best part of a year. Go and have a read. If you're listening to this and you're not a Mill member, we would love you to join us, £7 a month. And what that allows us to do is this kind of stuff which I think brings you insight. I think it allows you to understand the kind of powerful people in, a, in, a, in the city and um, hopefully it brings you some enjoyment as well. Jack, thank you very much.